Yeah, it's that, t- it's that time. We're working on it. Maybe after we get the book club up and running, we'll be able to get you yeah. a machine. I started making that list, man. Okay, what are the first five books? Uh, the first, the first book I've decided will be uh, "Rime of the Ancient Mariner" by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. You changed it. I did. I changed it on you. Yeah. Okay. So what's so why that's the first book? Uh, because it's a readable poem that that. Um, so people can will be able to read it and understand the poem, but it also I think is a good way to teach how to read um, read with layers, read uh, learn how to learn how the English language works or how all languages work in terms of communicating um, humanly, communicating in a human way, and so then when we jump into um, our next thing, I think, will be ready to uh, read read and interact like humans. All right, so let me go to Amazon and grab the book now. <laughs> you know what, though? There's we- a lot of different copies. I wonder if I should grab a particular copy and say, here's the one. You know what we should do? We should I mean, create they, uh, Amazon list. line numbers. Yeah. And that way. That. I'll, I'll make an Amazon list on the airplane today. Oh, okay. So what's book number two? Uh, well, this this is this is where it gets tough. The reason that I I was gonna do book number one as uh, an offering of uncles, yeah. but it's out of print, and so it's not easy to get. And so I figure if we make it second, that gives gives people a little bit more time Wait. to order it, and it, it'll be coming from a used source somewhere. That some of the copies were in England when I was looking on Amazon, and so that's. <laughs> Gonna sh- the shipping is longer. I mean, it's amazing that we can just get copies of books from England. I order English booksellers all the time, so. Um, but it takes longer to get there, so. I don't see my copy of Offering of Uncles here, but I was thinking, like, when was that written? Um, maybe early 60s. Yeah. 1962, 63. It's out of print because we don't read those kind of books anymore. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, I wonder if we so, couldn't talk to like Canon or somebody and, and see if what it would look like for us to get a, just a set of copies for people who join the book club. Oh, that's a good idea. I know there's a uh, um, his his book on marriage, bed and board, just went back into print. Oh, and it's really I got good. That one. But, yeah, you tell me yeah, about that one. It was out of print until maybe last year, um, and it's really good. Okay. Um, we'll have to. So that's not on the list, though. Bed and board is not on the list. I do need to finish reading that book because you got that book for me. Oh. Yeah, it's just written before there was an egalitarian push, and so it's refreshing because he doesn't feel like he needs to fight back against egalitarianism. He can just assume the center mm. and um, and uh, kind of rejoice in the joy of hierarchy um, <laughs> without it without it a threat to anybody's humanity because it's just written before feminism really took hold so it's a it's so it's really a joyful book about marriage and so many of our books about marriage have to be have to be fighting back right now um so it's refreshing to read yeah, yeah. so you, you can't just be like hey this is so much fun this part is great um you know you have to say okay here's the errors 
that we have to fight back against and and that's important and it's necessary but it, it can be refreshing to read just a, a book that's just kind of glorying in marriage but i feel like i have um, to talk like that too like so whenever i talk either in a public arena or to someone else i feel like i have to have presuppositions about their presuppositions so that mm-hmm. i don't speak in a way that they misunderstand right so they don't apply what i'm saying the wrong way and so i feel like right. in a lot of ways i'm held hostage to speak freely about some subjects because i know how the hearer is going to embrace what is being said and i i do look forward to like books that that are just like ah yes i can rest in it right right um, but i wonder if we can even engage with conversations like that yeah. <laughs> i mean i think it's because this, they're so like the the presuppositions and the errors are so deep deeply entrenched right now um it's hard to communicate i think we're kind of in a babble phase where the ability to communicate has been um destroyed by our idolatry <laughs> so mm. i mean when you read like postmodern theory or deconstructionists our our temptation is to take it really serious and say well, here's the philosophical answer and underpinnings, and and we may need to do that, but we actually have a biblical metaphor for what they're talking about. Right, the Tower of Babel was a giant deconstruction of the of language that was because of idolatry. The it was a postmodern moment. <laughs> they they stopped being able to communicate. They stopped uh, being able to understand one another. Say that again. And the Tower of Babel was. It, it was just it was just a postmodern moment, right? Post so postmodernism is the it teaches, you know, and the whole deconstructionist movement. There's different theories of why, but it teaches that communication is not possible, that it doesn't work as they're communicating. Language, <laughs> yeah, right. That language is not that that language doesn't um, work well. Uh, as a communicate as a way of communicating from person to person and with um they they're putting a philosophical spin on the whole thing but there's a biblical historical uh reason uh that when communication stops working we should say oh apparently we tried to build a tower to heaven to, oh, to heaven goodness. right we tried we tried to um, we tried to take on God in some way. Um, and where is that? And we, and as Christians, we should say, okay, let's repent. And, you know, Noah took his family East. I mean, and this is, this is just a, this is just a guess, but I think he took his family East and went and founded China. Um, the, and the Chinese, you know, is the language the, is, is the pre Babel language of of noah but the uh but what you have is this babel moment where god's people say oh okay they're not the, the ability to communicate has stopped that tower is coming down because that because it's idolatry let's get out of the way so it doesn't fall on us right um in in noah's day we we know that the solution to the tower of babel is the holy spirit right the, that that Babel was undone at Pentecost. Um, the church is the true is is the actual um, answer 
to what they were trying to do in the Tower of Babel, which is bring all nations together. And you know, the, the church is the true way that the nations are all brought together. And it's so it, it's easy to immediately say, where's the Tower of Babel being built? Well, it's probably New York, you know, it, and, and the, the financial system, or it's the governmental system or, but really the true issue with the Tower of Babel is going to be a church issue. And so when you look around at the thousands of, of you know, the splitting up of the, uh, of the church into thousands of little shards, we say, oh, okay, that's the fall of the Tower of Babel, right? Sure, Christians can't communicate. Christ, so the rest of the world is the tail um, that just follows along. But when we look at the church and say, my gosh, it's smashed, we apparently, w there was some sort of idolatry that we didn't take seriously. And now the Christians can't communicate with one another. So, um, and the, and the, the church or the, the rest, you know, the, the guy that invented um, deconstruction as we know it, he was studying Augustine at the time when he, when, when it hit him, you know, that communication stopped working. Right. He's, he's reading Augustine's philosophy and says, we no longer live in a world in which we, we can hold on to the assumptions the way they did in the ancient world. They all shared assumptions. They knew uh, they, they could, they uh, had the kind of integrated world, world uh, understanding of the world that they could communicate. We don't have that kind of integrated understanding of the world. And he thought it was because we had discovered the reality of the great darkness of the heavens, you know, that it was um, that, that we had, that science had proven that the world was not integratable, um, that we had to, that we had with our mind forced the integrated nature onto the world that we didn't, that we weren't discovering something. We were um, adding something to it, but um, and so he said, so communication is not possible anymore. Um, the church had already done that. <laughs> we, we had already disintegrated, uh, it disintegrated our, our, the, the church, um, because of, uh, pride and different things. I mean, the, the original denominations started because you had different language groups, different churches that spoke different languages that had different hymnals that were all preaching in their original tongue all landed in America at the same time. And if you spoke German, you went to the German church. If you spoke English, you went to the English church. You know, um, if you were a Huguenot, you went to the French church. Uh, there were, you, you go, you go to someplace like South Carolina and there's a bunch of churches in a row, but it's because they had, they each were in a different language, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, because of theological differences or something. It was just linguistic differences. Now, but then, eventually, it splits and different theological directions. And you know, and I, you, I don't know if you've heard the one about the the Presbyterian that got himself stuck on a on a, a deserted island, and when they came to rescue him. He's giving a tour, and he said, "Well, here's my house, and here's where I kept the food." And 
here's my church. And they said, oh, what's that church over there? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, we, we, be, we became really good at splitting the church. Um, but that's what, that's the Tower of Babel thing. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit pushes us towards one another, uh, even across language barriers. You know, the, the Pentecost is, is the great undoing of Babel. If we find ourselves moving away from one another, then we need to be looking for the idol. Always idolatry in the middle of that. What is it? What was it in Augustine that? I, first of all, who is the guy you're talking about that read Augustine that was like, "Oh yeah, Augustine is." Um, who is that person? That is, uh, oh, the, the German guy. Um, his name is why can I not think of his name off the top of my head um, his name is we'll see he uh, Derrida Jacques Derrida so oh, he was okay um, so that, you know that that the relationship between language and meaning um, that there was that there is a that there was a break between the relationship between language and meaning um, because we had turned away from the idea that there were true forms and essences, or we had discovered that there weren't true forms and essences underneath things. So uh, you know, Augustine believed that the, the true form of every thing was in the mind of God and that as things partook of the essence of the form that is in the mind of God, they had a real, there was a real reality to what a thing was to its ontology to it. So it had a real true essence because in God's mind, he knew what it was. And so that, that thing took its essence from the mind of God. God spoke it into existence. That word truly made it into what God thought it was, right? Which makes sense. You know, but, but so um, the deconstructionists, are, they, they, they look at the fact that we don't buy into that anymore, and we don't, where we think everything is randomly, um, or not, not randomly in the, but that by chance, things are in the particular shape they're in. Um, but they are, but if that matter falls apart, that matter can be reshaped into something new. So there's not an essence within a thing. Um, there is the uh, external forces have pushed things into their current shape, uh, and they will fall out of that current shape at some point in the future. Um, and, and, uh, so he said, if that's true, Right, then meaning and language don't actually connect. Right? The lack of essences, real essences, means that those two things aren't really connected, um, that we are putting onto, we are putting meaning onto things with language. We're not deriving the true meaning out of things. And so communication isn't possible. And we have a tendency to say, well, that's stupid, right? But it's actually reasonable. Well, yeah, <laughs> He's I, being reasonable 
if the if if we don't live in an integrated world in which there are true essences, then he's right. Right, right. Yeah, because he's saying, wait, he said you can't ever come to this thing actually being what it is because it changes. So therefore, everything is subjective. Right. So the um, the and it's not subjective in the so we and so there's two uses of the word subjective that there's uh, subjective in the sense that um, you know my like I I like vanilla ice cream other people like caramel ice cream right um and so it's just a subjective matter of taste but when when they say it's subjective so we we tend just to put that meaning onto what they say by what they mean by subjective when they say it's subjective what they mean is the subject is actually um is actually putting the meaning onto it, not deriving the meaning. There's not an objective. The object doesn't have an essence, a meaning in it. The subject supplies the meaning. So when I look at, um, you know, when I look at a brick, I supply the meaning brick to it because it, there's not an essence within the object that can make it have objective meaning. It has to have, it has to have, and, and if there is no subject adding meaning, then there's not really meaning, right? And so, um, when they say subjective, they, there's a technical meaning to the word subjective, and what they're all they're saying is, if there is no God, there is no objective truth. We we actually agree with that. <laughs> That's yeah. not. We don't disagree about that. And this is why the, um, everything basically modernism on introduces a, a terribly, um, tenuous understanding of knowledge is knowledge possible. Is it true? And because it is because they've, they realize that without God, that there is a fundamental nihilism, but not, not, not nihilism in the sense that they're just, that there isn't meaning in, I mean, not, not moralistic nihil, nihilism. Nihilism, what it actually is, is a belief that you can only define things by what it's not. Right? You're always defining things over against what it isn't. Right? So, so you can't get a positive definition of anything. You can only get a definition that things are not um, something else. Right. So I don't have an essence. Um, all I have is I'm not all the other people. Right. So you can, you can say you can identify me as, as Jason Farley because I'm not all the other people. Right. So my definition comes negatively comes by what I'm not. And which is why, um, you know, that the, it, there's a, um, which is, which is, it eventually leads to a moralistic, uh, moral nihilism as well, but they're actually, they're just looking, they're looking into the abyss of, of a world without God and identifying the problem. So there isn't anything that 
as Christians, we would disagree on if there was no God. But the problem is, or the, the thing is, is the book of Ecclesiastes already uh-huh. already identified all this. Yeah. So none of this should be a surprise to us or new to us or any, we should just be saying like, yeah, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. Welcome to this Bible. <laughs> Let me show you. Oh, it already said it's, that. It's like, it's, you know, it's worse than what you even think, my friend. <laughs> right, <yes>. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so um, this, this is, this is, uh, this is, but, but what we've done is actually tried often the church has actually just defended modernism has gone back a half step and, and tried to defend post say, no, no, no. Look, here is the foundation of knowledge that you can have that we can stand on together. Um, objective science, scientism or, um, or we, uh, historical, historical studies or, you know, uh, all sorts of things that we've tried to, to um, say here's the here's the foundation, um, but what we actually need to do is go back to our doctrine of creation, right? And and look at the way that God created a fully integrated universe in which He is both outside of um, and above and, and intimately within and present everywhere. Okay, Jason. Right? The, yeah, hold on. Don't forget that. Hold that together because I want to hit this really quick. You know, one of the things that I have concerns about are the way that people are having the conversation. What is a woman? And I think right. you, I think you just hit the very center of my problem because I'm looking at them and they are asking the question, "What is a woman?" And then all of a sudden, it goes into what is truth. Right. Because you can't have, you know, yeah. that those two things separate. But then um, when it comes time for, you know, uh, Matt Walsh to talk about what is truth or what is a woman, it does. It, it argues exactly the way you're talking, where it's a modernistic argument of what is a woman and what is truth. Yeah. Over against a, a biblical creative argument, because those people are actually seeing it right. If what they see about reality is true, then it doesn't matter. There is no real definition, and it is whatever you want to make of it. Um, or, they, or whoever has the power, right? Cause right, it, right, right, right. Because then it just becomes a question of, well, who has the power, enough power to, to coerce everyone else into their definition? Well, and they're even arguing that the power is in me to be able to make that objective observation, which is kind of weird to say when you think about it. Right. But, I, but and I, I haven't seen that yet. I need to, I need to get it's phenomenal. It. I, I thought it was a good film. I thought it was a great film because it, it, you know, for people who are sane, it points out insanity. It's like going to the zoo. And, yeah. yeah. He's like, you well, can, that, you know, my understanding is he actually only asks questions the whole time. Right. So he he doesn't actually come out and make a positive statement because that's not the point of the documentary. The point is I'm going to ask these questions and find out what how it is that people are answering them. Is is that was that the point of the documentary? He his point he sent a text like message. A Socratic. Yeah, that's kind of what he he has a Socratic method. But the, I think that it's a flawed modernistic understanding of the Socratic method. The Socratic method isn't asking questions to see what you think. 
The Socratic right. method is to bring you to a truth so that you think properly. And it's assuming yeah. certain faculties about your mind that God has given you, certain realities about the creation narrative and who you are and what you're for, that brings you to a form of reasoning that is within nature. Right? Right. And so yeah. when people say, well, I'm using the Socratic method, it's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> um, you're not doing that. Right. And so he's. He is his. He sent a text message to Jason Whitlock because Jason had a huge problem with it, even though he thinks the film was wonderful. But he was like, um, he wrote a whole piece on it. I thought was phenomenal. But you know, Jason. Uh, he told Jason, we knew that they, the left and people on the other side were going to come at us because of our religious perspective and yeah. our Christian and our. We didn't want to be looked at as. Oh yeah, that you got. Okay, yeah, we see you. You got a sky daddy, and you got God, and yeah. that's how you. And so we didn't. We knew they were coming, so we wanted to subvert their, um, their the way that they were going to hit us, and we were trying to create a counterpunch to that by making the film like this. And I just, to me, I'm like, and so they got you to lay down your best weapon. <laughs> okay, right. all right, but but so I want to go back to what you were saying. Okay, so we argue, and that's and so. I just wanted to point that out. That I think you're hitting it. My biggest point, my biggest problem with the, not just the film, but how we're having the argument on um, questions of metaphysics. What is a woman? We're arguing modernistically. We're defending yeah. a modernistic yeah. understanding of this because that's what we've had for so long. But even that modernistic understanding fails. Explain how that's failing as well. Well, so the the modernists all. Um, what were they had some sort of what's called an ideology where you have a single a single I- idea a single point intellectual point and and you derive everything else from it right so an ideology is uh, it, it, every, the modernists all disagreed on what that single point was what that foundation point was but they all agreed there was some sort of foundation and then you could build everything else onto it. Um, the, the difficulty or the problem was, um, that the, what the postmoderns were able to do was come through and just pull each rug and say, well, no, that one doesn't work. That one doesn't work. We, there is no foundation that, that works. And, um, the, the, so whether it was, um, you know, I can, my, what I can gather in the information I can gather from my senses is trustworthy. Right. Um, or the information that I, uh, the, that there are logical a priori assumptions that we all can make. And then every, all of our logical claims can be derived from them. Um, that, uh, that, um, you know, history is moving, moving forward and, towards something greater. So um, new is always going to be better, right? There were different mm. things that they would say, here's the assumption, here's the assumption. And then we can build everything else on that and gain, get to true um, knowledge, true trustworthy knowledge through that, uh, from that point. Well, um, the postmodernists come along and, you know, each of those things is a created thing. And so none of them, work right so unless mm. there is an uncreated thing or an uh, you know an, a non uh, something that's not a part of nature then there's no nothing 
in nature can have any sort of ultimate meaning. So, uh, so that's the that's the argument of the postmodernists. The the postmodernists are basically pulling the curtain back and saying, "Where's your God?" Because if you don't have that, then it doesn't matter. Right. So that's why um, they they called human beings priests of the nothing, um, and what that meant was that we were doomed to uh, we we were doomed to uh, feeling like we wouldn't fit ever within um, reality because we had a mind that could turn around and look objectively upon things. And there was no, but there was no real place from which to look objectively. Right? So our mind um, had to, it had to basically back up into no space and look down upon reality right? Because our mind could, could do this thing where it looked objectively at things, but that there was no objective spot from which to look. We were doomed to, um, to a life of not fitting into reality with the French called ennui. Um, with that, the feeling of having no place. Yeah. We talked well, about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about this before. But that is, that's, they, they basically have said the problem is we are all descendants of Adam. So we're all priests of this place. And there's no God to priest towards. Mm. Right. So a priest stands between um, and brings together. Right? That's what a, a priest does. And Adam, a, Adam and Eve are the first priests and priestess of creation. And it's their job to, uh, to, to take dominion and then lift the creation up to God, right? To stand between God and creation and draw them towards one another, to bring creation constantly into line with God's desires for it, to bring it to its intended end. And the intended end comes from the creator. Well, he says we are priests, right? We step into that space, but there's nothing on the other side to lift creation towards, right? So he's, we're, we're priests of the nothing. It's really one of the most, um, it's, it is, it's a, a terrible, a terribly honest, honest, honest with how terrible everything is, um, without God. And we should look at it and say, actually they have nailed our, uh, they have nailed our, essence as priests when the church has forgotten that we're supposed to be priests um, the the human race is a priestly cast right the, every human is is that they're created for that role to, to take a piece of creation uh, to take their neighbor to take everything and lift it up to the Lord that's mm. what that's what we do day in and day out that's our whole that's our whole life's mission the church forgot it the postmodernists remembered, right? They remembered that uh, they they remembered the echo of Eden that the church had forgotten, and they despaired because they didn't have Jesus. <laughs> they, they looked back and they said, "We got kicked out of the garden, and here we are. Now there's nothing, right?" Which, and the church should have said, "Wait, wait, wait. 
you are you are on to something, right? Um, you, the, the, if you, because that priestly nature of mankind um, is something that the church has forgotten. I mean, we, this was this was the problem in the High Middle Ages that the Reformation reminded the world of is that we're a nation of priests. That the, the priesthood of all believers is a is a central doctrine to especially the German part of the Reformation. Um, the what had happened in the High Middle Ages is the the priest um, the the Latin word for priest and the Latin word for pastor were the same for a long time, and they ended up getting separated out by the Reformation because. Um, the you need to make a distinction. We're not like the Roman Catholic priests. We're something different. We're the pastors, but priests meant pastor. But you know, three hundred, four hundred years earlier. It, right. So, um, the but what it, what had happened was the priest was a, a was up front doing the priestly work, and everyone else was being priested. Right, everyone else was being lifted up. Um, and they, and they had no, they no longer had a lifting role, right? So, um, they even in, in a, a lot of churches, they started putting up a barrier, like a physical barrier between the priest and everyone else, even and that's how bad it was getting. And so all of the worship happened up front, right? So the, um, in a lot of places, oh my you, goodness. This you is weren't so even good. getting the bread and the wine anymore. Um, but the priest was taking it but he was taking it on your behalf. Right. And so all of the music happened up front, all of the, you know, you, it, it became a performance that the congregation came and watched, right. That was what was happening in the high middle ages as they were watching. And, um, the, the church, there were well-meaning Christians, Roman Catholics that would say, we've got to perform it really, really well. Cause it's so important that the people come and hear about the Lord. Right. So they would work really hard on these performances up front. Well, the Reformation came and said, well, whose job is it to lift the name of the Lord up? It's the congregation's job. The songs of the congregation are the throne of Christ, right? We, that, that we carry, that, that the congregation carries the name of the Lord, that, that the whole, everybody is a priest, um, and that the, that the one up front, the priest up front, is actually leading the priesthood of the congregation in their role as priests. So there's a corporate priesthood that each individual then partakes of. Um, and that was a revolutionary doctrine, a revolutionary understanding that then the church began to forget again, right? And when the spirit comes, we remember uh, we remember these things and uh, when the spirit is, is poured out fresh and we remember these things. Um, but the church had really forgotten that role and it was moving back into performance mode. Uh, and the postmodernists were the ones that remembered our priesthood, but they despaired because if there's no one to priest for or to priest, you know, Jason, so are you, would you, as you're talking and you're making this connection from the Middle Ages and postmodernism and the way the church was acting, all I can see is our modern churches right now. 
where yeah. we have this pulpit type setup that's away from the audience. That's I don't have a problem with it being high. I get that. I know what I know what they're trying. But we've taken that and we've created a barrier between the people who come to church and the performances that happen on the stage. Yeah. And everything is worked up and the lighting, we have a whole light ministry now and we'll have, you know, the band ministry and we'll have, and this is this huge performance that is done really, 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 really well because it's so important that people can get this right. But it's, it's not, right. it's not, it's reversed. Right. And so while it looks a little better and we might not have the same type of fences or barriers in one way, we've created it in another and so do you, right. do, I, do you think that our setup in that way has driven postmodernism? I, I mean, I think so. I think that, and I, I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's an accident that postmodern, that we had no defenses against postmodernism when it started to creep into the evangelical church in America. Right. In the nineties, you started to get the postmodernists, uh, the the pastors kind of flirting with postmodernism, and there literally were no defenses. As soon as one person mentioned it, it just flooded in. Um, and the, there were people that were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't you remember our modernist roots?" And the and the next generation said, "That's exactly the problem, right?" Um, that and and some of it, I think, was just that the youth group movement, which I was saved by, right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for it in, in, a, uh, I, there are churches that did it really well. And I, the church that I went to, I think actually it was a PC USA church, but the youth group, um, was, was, they knew exactly what it was doing. It was a, it was a long on ramp for unbelieving kids to come into the church and they didn't, they, they weren't, it wasn't a discipleship for the kids in the church. It was an on-ramp, it was an evangelistic ministry. And they, they knew it, and so they were able to do it well. But what happens in a lot of churches is the youth group worshipped a particular way. Yeah. It had a different hymnal, had a different preaching style, and had, you know, and then when those kids grew, outgrew youth group and went to enter into regular church, the church that they were entering into was not at all like their experiences of God. And so they went to find and or start a church with a liturgy they were comfortable with. Right. When we, it, um, when we moved to uh, Spokane and we were for the first time visiting churches, um, I'd never done that in my entire life. Uh, we visited a bunch of churches and my kids it was amazing watching them, you know, visit churches because we went to one church and right before the sermon, they said, okay, all the kids can go over here. We've got to have some age appropriate teaching. And my daughter who um, leaned over and she said, when do the kids get to go to real church here? <laughs> yeah. yeah she, she was like, I've never seen the kids leave during the service. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Um, we visited other churches another church that didn't have the Lord's supper at the end. And she said, wait, and two of my kids said, wait, church isn't done yet. Why is everybody leaving? We haven't had the Lord's supper. So the liturgy is powerful 
informing our understanding of how it is that we're approaching God. And you, and everyone has a liturgy. It's, it's an inescapable reality that uh, a church is going to have an order in which they do things. And that because we are creatures of time, we're it, one of the things that we lift up to God one of our jobs is to lift time up to God. We live through and in time and we are priests of time. We use that. We, we take the time and we lift it up to God in a glorifying way. And, um, and liturgy is, we is inescapable for that reason. So our job is to shape the liturgy as much like the gospel as we can so that it is gospel shaped time when we gather together. Mm. Well, my, my kids, they, we visited different churches you know, with, with family members and all sorts of things and with wonderful, well-meaning Christians. And my wife and I both knew that a number of these churches we could have settled, she and I could have settled into because we had a broader, broad enough experience to understand the, the different liturgies. And, but my kids were like, we just want something like what we've always had. Right. And then there was a little church plant, like three minutes from our house that, we were introduced to, they used the same liturgy that we had always had saying you know, hymns like we had always had. Uh, and, and my kids said, this is where we're staying. Right? And they had the Lord's supper weekly. My kids were like, this is where we're staying, right? Like this feels like home because the liturgy is the same. Mm. Um, and, uh, they, this, this is it. Well, it, for generations, we have put the kids into youth groups with a different liturgy. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think youth group is the problem. I think it's our shallow, shallow understanding of what liturgy is for, what music, you know, and the, the formative nature of the music, right? The kids sing a, a different hymnal or they sing, they sing different songs and then they come to church and they're like, Oh, these are not my, this is not my hymnal. Right. And so they can't integrate into the church with the adults. Um, so, you know, at our church, we have a teen Bible study, it, we just sing all the exact same songs and it's what it is, is it's an opportunity for the teenagers to fellowship with one another and get teaching from the scriptures on how to be teenagers. Well, right. That's, that's what our youth group is. And it's, it, those kids all integrate really well into the church on Sunday mornings. And it's neat to see uh, them interact with the adults, but there's not a problem integrating because youth group is just like church. I mean, in terms of culturally, they're well integrated and that's what a church should want is the kids to grow up saying, this is my church. This, that's, those are my pastors. This is, this is my hymnal, right? Embrace it like that. My church calendar. So, okay. We're, see, that's, Okay, we're gonna get to the church calendar because I got a, I got a bunch of questions about that. You know, when it when I think what we've seen with youth group, Jason has been, and I'm not speaking into well, I'll, yeah, maybe it applies to everybody. Youth group has been a place to keep. It's like a Christian form of purgat a reform form of purgatory, <laughs> because we gotta have a place to put those people who are not quite Christians yet. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we can't bring them into the service because they're not baptized. So, right. but yet we know that they have a place because there are kids somewhere with us at the service. And so we have to put them somewhere. Where do we put them at? 
And so we've created right. a place for the, because of our understanding of covenant. It's while we have it because we can't escape it. It's broken. <laughs> so we put yeah. these people somewhere to keep them there well, so I, that I, we can disciple them into the. But but you're right. We have. I remember this in, in when I was at a my PCA church. I remember going down because I was in service wondering where are all the the youth that I see them. And then there's this moment in the service where there's like somewhere in the middle of a song, all the kids break away and it's in the bulletin. I never saw it, but all the kids would break away while we're singing and they would leave and go to this $5 million gymnasium that we had purchased uh, to build. And I remember going down to the youth group um, one time in in middle of the week and when they have the youth group on Wednesdays or whatever. And I saw a whole different culture so we're a PCA church. We're very traditional. When I went down to the youth group, it was Eve free. Oh yeah. Okay. It was, we were all classical up there and classical music, uh, Psalms and hymns. Uh, we weren't singing a lot of songs, but we we're singing a lot of traditional hymns. We have our hymnal. When you went downstairs, uh, Chris Tomlin was down there hanging with them jokers, right? Like he, that's where he was at, yeah. like, you know, and, uh, they, you know, all of those. And so when I went down there, it was completely different service. They had a drum set. They had a lead guitar player. They had worship singers. And I was just sitting there like, and I remember talking to the music guy and I was like, you do know you're training them right outside of your church, right? Like you're, you're yeah, training them to leave. Yep. And and I don't think they had thought about it in their good intentions. All they really wanted to do was make sure that they didn't lose their kids. Right. right. They're and, trying to they're, they're trying to bless their kids. They and that's exactly right. They're trying to not lose their kids. The diff, but the thing is we we have to raise our kids by faith and not by works. And that's what it looks like to try to raise your kids by works. When we talk about works, we always assume bad things but raising your kids by works is usually is going to be a bunch of good things just not done by faith okay i mean yeah, no there's no doubt of, go ahead I, so we live from faith to faith but then for whatever reason when it comes to our kids we say except here we don't mm. do this by faith okay so now, I want to deal with this before we move on and start talking about calendar stuff. We we are in a place where I feel just to write a basic sentence, it's hard for a I had an argument with a guy on Twitter and I told the guy multiple times, I agree with you, and I pointed out that I was making a point inconsistent that I'm making a point consistent with his argument. I was just making it on the latter half of a of the argument. Okay. So I don't want to get into the whole point of it, but I was telling him, Hey man, I agree with you. And so that's why I said this. And I was speaking to the second half of the argument and he wrote back an, a whole scathing thing. Like you don't believe the first part of the argument. You don't believe the first part of the argument. And so it makes sense because, um, you get the gospel, you get the gospel wrong as it relates to, uh, infants being baptized, you know? And he's like, so you no doubt that you would put the the baptism before the regeneration and all that stuff like that. And so he just lit me up, right? And completely misunderstood everything I was saying. But I didn't see that as like a theological disagreement so much as I saw it, and it was, as a grammatical disagreement. Like he couldn't understand yeah. that I actually agree with him on text. And I'm seeing 
when I watch people like AOC, when I watch uh, conservatives out there talking, when I, I, they say sentences that don't make any sense. I read articles where I'm like, the, the, the logic in this doesn't work. How do you write this sentence when things just don't fit together? It doesn't make any sense. Like, I can't even get to your argument because I can't understand what you're saying. So we're living in a time that is clear babble, right? Right, and so right. it, it and, and it makes it makes sense. And so when you're talking to people, you know, um, when you're talking to people, you don't expect that they will understand you very well, even though you're trying. So what you end up doing is you go for all the shock methods, right? You're either yelling, you say, "Well, you're this kind of person," and you're like, "Whoa!" Right. And that person's taking it back because what you're trying to do is you're trying, and I get it. You're trying to charge them back to life. You you're trying to, hey man, put the shock on them and get them to come back to life because this is a dead person. So that's so that's we're dealing with the real postmodern reality. And you yeah. said the best way to deal with this, though, is to go back to the Genesis narrative. Work through for me work, how we should have been dealing, how we should be answering postmodernism instead of answering with the most modernistic ideology. How do we answer with a biblical worldview from Genesis? Yeah. The, yeah so the it, it's all about the an integrated cosmos an integrated creation that actually fits together that we have a place in right that that is that really that really has an ontological existence and a purpose right? a teleology so that that it's a re, that creation really exists that our job is to figure out all about all of the different parts how they fit together, how to use them properly, uh, and what the what the goal of all of them is, so that we can glorify God and serve our neighbor. Right? We can love God and serve our neighbor. That's the purpose of creation. That's the kind of place this is. This is a um, it's a theater um, in which we glorify God. Right? So th this is the everything that we've got are those kinds of things. And so our job is to figure out what a thing is. And what, how do we glorify God with it and bless our neighbor with it? Um, and, and that, that it all fits together. So, um, you know, there are certain, uh, books that I, book series that do this really well, um, fiction wise, like the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it presents this integrated understanding of everything and, and when you read it, that's why it's so refreshing. The Lord of the Rings is like this. I think actually Harry Potter is like this. Um, and I think it's the reason that you've had this rise of fantasy and science fiction uh, is because we, we no longer believe that our world fits together. And so we escape into worlds that all fit together. Wow. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So you do, you don't really have fantasy um, worlds or science fiction worlds really um, in the ancient world, right? They you don't, you just don't get those. Um, I mean, you get some adventure stories that maybe have some fantastical elements, and um, but they don't think of it in fantasy the way we do. You know, that they think that you just get beyond the edge of this world and there's chaos out there and there's adventure everywhere. So, um, uh, 
Yeah, so I it's a stretch. Well, no, no, no. I, I think so. Whenever, like, if you're reading Chaucer, uh, Canterbury Tales, um, you are you you expected that to exist in your world, right? Like, so that's right. a part of your reality. Yeah. What you're what you're talking about the way we do now is we escape to the Avengers because we know there's no heroes in our world, right? Right. The, yeah, and we so know we we don't believe in heroism, right? But Virtue. There's this world yeah, we that. escape to that we find really satisfying. Yes. And this is, you know, people sit around and talk about how all the Avengers universes and multiverses fit together. And because they, they want it to be an integrated universe, Star Wars, that all fits together. Star Wars, the same thing. And we escape into it. And people are really upset when you, um, uh-huh. when you don't use the force properly, right? Because it has, it has rules. It has limits. That's and that's what makes those worlds refreshing and feel wow. like rest because we don't believe our world is an integrated universe. And, um, Jason, so we, we, you, yeah. you, you've just explained why gaming is what it is right now, right? Yeah, because it's got rules and limits, and it, so it's, not post-modern. it's not postmodern, it's not postmodern. And even the even the room. Even the it wouldn't be any fun. Actually, the ones that do try and function as a postmodern world, people are like this is boring. Yeah. It's an empty world with nothing in it. No, and there's no real yeah. rules. And so, what do you do here? Absolutely nothing. And it's funny because even the world, even like um, anarch, uh, anarchist type games, are running from the police because of the fact that they have rules. It, they can't, right. and they know that. And so they, you know, they're. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Everything you just said is why gaming has been what it has been. It's not just that it's technology. It's creating a world that they can escape to with rules and limits and heroism and virtue that they love. Yep, exactly. And, and the, the worlds that, the, the games that try to mess with that uh, fail. Right? They're, they're not, they, they aren't satisfying because they don't accomplish what it is that our humanity needs which is an escape from the ennui of not believing we have an integrated universe with a place for us a place where we fit so one of my one of my um favorite well my uh growing up so i didn't really grow up going to church but uh my the librarian at my elementary school handed me um, Tolkien and Lewis and then eventually King Arthur and Beowulf and um, and uh, in the voyage of the Don Treader there's this amazing scene where they uh, are stuck on an island <laughs> the Ram- Ramandu's island and Ramandu is a star that is currently uh, retired and so he is he is refreshing um, to and before the emperor of the lone islands, uh, Aslan's father puts him back into the sky. So, um, and they're sitting around and talking and, and, uh, Eustace says, uh, he, he says, Oh, you're a star. He says, in my world, stars are giant balls of flaming gas. And, uh, and Ramandu responds, even in your world, that's only what they're made of. And when I was young, that, captured my imagination so significantly because I, I 
that was my big problem. I mean, I declared myself an atheist in the sixth grade because I didn't think things had an essence. Like, you know, I, I, I had bought into all of the postmodernism. I'm in sixth grade and I don't even know where it all comes from. It just, it's all just in the air, in the water. Um, and we're all absorbing it and Christians, non-Christians alike, we're all absorbing this understanding without even realizing it because the, you know, the astronomy that we, that, that we teach is filled to the brim with it. The science that we teach, the, the historical, all the historical assumptions, the, the false belief that there's such thing as cavemen, you know, all of the, everything teaches that, uh, this uh, this cosmology, this ontology, and we just soak it in. It's impossible to avoid uh, unless we're purposefully leaning back against it. Um, and all of our defenses, uh, we have slowly dismantled in the church, uh, not even realizing that we are taking down our biggest and greatest weapons. Um, you know, we, we've got these these big. Um, these big rocket launchers and we slowly dismantle them um, because we look at them and we don't know what they're for anymore. Mm. We don't know what to do with them. Mm. Um, So, you know, sacraments and calendar and liturgy um, are really, really powerful in a setting like this. So what is, you know, we, so part, okay, so I don't want to summarize what you just got done saying. Part of what we need to do is to start going back to our true mythos, our, our, our narrative of Genesis. God yep. made the world. We fit in that world. He's made us for this purpose. We really need to bang that. I mean, we talk about it a lot, me and you, but we really need to say that on in every aspect of our lives. When you were talking about education and you said, um, you know, it, it was just part of the air that you were breathing in the culture. It's one of the main reasons that we should be saying that's why you don't send your kids to government school because they're creating this disjointed reality for them about the world, you know? Right. And, and, yeah, well, and, I, and, right. I, and I think, but even in Christian schools, often we don't, we don't ever get around to teaching a Christian like a Christian, we, we put the Bible into a Bible class right? rather than having mm. a, rather than understanding that the Bible is the true mythos underneath and behind everything. Right. So the Bible doesn't confront the false mythos because we don't believe that we have swallowed the mythos. If that makes sense, we, we we've assumed it so significantly, uh, the mythos of the world that we don't see the places that we've swallowed it. So even in the way we argue for creation science, we are arguing from their mythos. <laughs> They've already owned the center, and we're just trying to live inside of the yeah. world. Yeah. And I and I don't think it's a more. I I don't want to say that that they that they're making a moral error. Because I don't, I think a lot of folks in the creation science movement, I don't think they're, I think they are, they are fighting for the scriptures. They're answering the question, and, they're asking the wrong question though. Yes, exactly. But they're, they're, the, the fight is 
they are, they have stood, um, when everyone else fell. Yeah. Um, and, uh, (laughs) but the church has given them the weapons they need to actually fight the fight, but they're out there with their pitchforks and their hammers and, you know, um, they're still up fighting. And so we should, we should be grateful yeah, that they're um, there. And, yeah. and say, but you know, it's too bad we didn't ever forge them swords. <laughs> Ouch. So help me. So then with all that, so then this is something that's really helpful. I've, since I've been in Moscow, I've learned something that I hadn't learned in other places. So I think about, okay, we got, excuse me, we have Easter, we have Christmas, um, and those are the two Christian holidays that are on our current calendar, right? That we think yeah. about. Okay. But when I moved to Moscow, I found it was weird for me because, <clears throat> okay, we'll talk about Ascension Sunday. We'll have that one. I, I, I know about that one. But there was this whole Advent season right? that was around this holiday. Um, and I think, some churches will be happy for Evan because everybody talks about it kind of Catholic has the Catholic influence has left that. I think in America where they have the Advent season and, but there's this whole Christian calendar that wasn't even on my radar, <laughs> a complete calendar, Christian calendar. It wasn't on my radar at all. And, and since then it's made me think a lot more about just the calendar itself and, and the influence of the calendar that it has on us um how from your perspective do calendars help us to fit into the 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 cosmos the way we're supposed to as our our part of calendars are probably because it's a form of worship you said hey man or priest right they had to go find the thing yeah. and give it up to god well we fit we in some sense or another when i look at a christian calendar they found the days and they're saying lord these are the days and we're giving them up to you all days belong to you but these are certain days and these are festival days and we're giving these to you so does a calendar help us fit in? Is in this calendar part of our problem for why we're not fitting in? How does calendar influence our our um dis? Uh, here's goes a bunch of questions. I'll just let you pick which one you yeah. want. Uh, <laughs> us being dislodged or not, you know. And what's your take on that? Yeah. Well, I think that the intention when God gave us the cal a calendar, it was the purpose was to say you have a place in this creation as it moves through time, right? Mm. Here, let me, so, you know, on the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and the stars, and they're there for lights. They're there for beauty. They're there uh, as a clock and they're there as a calendar to mark festival days. Right. So it's, it's the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, um, the, the, I mean, up until 1967, we were still using the exact same way of tracking time. 1967, we switched over to the atomic clock in Geneva that's the, that measures the vibrations of a cesium atom. Um, it's, so, but up until 1967, we still had the same clock system that they had used since the ancient world, right? The same way of tracking the calendar and, so we, um, we, because of technology, we often, um, we don't depend upon the creation the way they did in the ancient world. 
um, to for definitions, right? So if you've got an atomic clock, then you can say, well, what do I need the sun for? I don't, what do, you know, what, what do I need the right. stars for? Right. This, this clock, I can count these cesium, the, the, the vibrations of this cesium atom, and that will get me to um, where I need to go on time and that sort of thing. Well, in, in um, the way God set the world up, he, he said there are days, there are weeks, there are months, and there are years. And the day was uh, the had to do with the rotations of the sun or the, the motions of the sun. It was one dark time plus one light time. That was a day. The weeks had to do with the counting of days. The months had to do with the the uh, the the moon's um, cycle, and the years had to do with the sunrise and the sunsets. Uh, the the cycle of uh, of uh, equinoxes, um, you know, and, uh, the, where the sun, when the sun changed directions as it moved across the horizon in its settings and rising. So, so you just to keep track of the calendar, you had to be present in the creation, right? The creation, uh, told you when the, uh, what time it was, what day it was, mm. what, what month it was, you know, all of those things. Um, there were in the ancient world, there was, there were two different weekly calendars. There was a fight for the week actually. Um, cause there's the 10 day week and the seven day week and the seven day week is derived from the scriptures. And then it is also, um, it's, it's derived from creation because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Um, but it also, uh, had there were seven planets, uh, and so the uh, dedicating one day to each planet in rotation also got you the week. So the the Hebrews weren't the only ones with a seven day week. There were other places where there was a seven day week based on observation of the sky, and I think that comes from Noah, who probably also set the constellations as well. So I think Noah probably set the constellations. And then the seven day week base, you know, and the, 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 uh, with each one, um, a reminder of each day from the different planets. You've got seven visible planets in the sky without a telescope. So to be in the, to be in the calendar was it to be a part of creation. Cause even the 10 day week was based upon the cycles of the moon. Right. So you have, <laughs> can't avoid it. The, yeah, you can't avoid it. So you're a part, you're, you, you can see that your passage of time is de- your measurements of time. All of them are dependent upon the way the world is created. Right? Mm. So you're like, so your, so time is like a puddle that takes shape based on the, its surroundings. Mm. Right? So, um, and uh, we now when, uh, up until Jesus, uh, the so God God sets the festivals. He names the months, and but the, but it's a lunar calendar. Right? The 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 world the Old Testament calendar is all based on the moon. The festivals are on the are are all you know fifteen days after the new moon. The new moon is when you can't see the moon at all. So and then 
it takes 14 and a half days to get to a um, 14 and a quarter days to get to a full moon. The festivals are all on the full moon, partly because you are, I mean, there's a symbolic reason, but also because you could party into the night. So right. God sets up his festivals on the full moon so that we can have a full, full festival. Um, but the, uh, but, but you starting in Isaiah 60 and then in Malachi four, you start getting this prophecy that the sunrise of history is coming, right? So that the, the old Testament is the nighttime of history because there's evening and the morning, um, and history takes on that same shape. So you start getting these prophecies that the sunrise is coming, the sunrise is coming, right? And so when, when Jesus is born, um, you, uh, the stars lead the wise men because it's nighttime. Um, right? And the, so the stars lead the wise men over to Jesus, and then the sun comes up, right? Jesus is born, and that's the, the sunrise of history. So, uh, and so you have this whole, cre- all of creation is designed in such a way, even the movements through time are designed in such a way that it tells you and shows you that Jesus is um, that, that, that this whole place was created to, for, and about Jesus. Mm. Uh, so the sunrise of history comes and uh, God's people who are called, you know, stars in the old Testament, yeah. Abraham yeah. is star. And he says, your, your descendants will be the stars in the sky. And right, there's, there's, Joseph there's saw the stars, stars coming about down to him. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, the, he, God's people are moved to the heavenly places with Jesus, um, restored to their place over the calendar. Right? Oh, it, uh, in the Old it. Testament, we're, <laughs> we're under the calendar, and the calendar is called one of our tutors, right? We're, we're called students, and the calendar is our teacher. The, the sun, the moon, and the stars are our teacher. You've got all these images, uh, but then we become adults, and Colossians, um, tells us we're now over the calendar, right? It's our job to set the calendar. We no longer are under the calendar, right? We become lords with Christ of time rather than servants of time. Right? So we, the, the calendar, then the, the authority to set the calendar is, is moved from God directly giving us the cal- uh, things on the calendar to now we're supposed to grow in wisdom and set the calendar ourselves. And so you've got, you know, for 300 years, they fight over the date of Easter. You know, the oldest date of Easter is the first um, Sunday after the first full moon after the Passover, um, which is count, which is, I believe the 14th of the Nisan, which I can't remember how many, cycles of the moon that was, but it's, it, it, um, and then you have them, uh, but some of the heretical groups take on that fight and you've got other people saying, well, no other churches that are celebrating Easter, um, on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Um, so sometimes they line up I think it's every 86 years, those two Sundays line up, but, Mm -hmm. but you've got, um, the, this fight over the calendar, um, which is really a question of, uh, uh, of authority who gets to decide. Um, 
it, it's not really a fight over Easter. It's a fight. It's a fight over the authority structure of the church, mm. right? Because the the people that are arguing for the d- date based on the 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 lunar cycles and Passover um, are uh, are actually you know they they have more of a um, Presbyterian style government. The people that are uh, the Roman Christians are fighting for the one that's based on the solar calendar, partly because Rome has a solar calendar and um, the Israelites had a lunar calendar. And so their two calendars didn't fit well together. Um, a lot of the tribal calendars are lunar um, where the imperial calendars tend to be solar. Um, and so you, you have this universal church now that is, that is trying to figure out how does our authority structure work and the place that God grew them into a universal institution was in discussions over the calendar. Mm. So what kind of institution are we? Well, we're a universal institution. It took about a hundred years to, to settle on the date of Easter together. Um, And it, it was a date that was settled until you had the great schism of the Eastern and the Western churches, uh, uh, so, but, which was also a question of authority, but it was a question over the creed. Can the universe, can the enough, can the churches um, from the bottom up add a line to a creed or does the creed have to be edited from the top down? Mm. Right? The East said that the creeds can only be edited top down. The West said, Creeds can be edited top down or bottom up. Right. So that was the, that was what the great schism ended up being about. Those are questions of authority. What does a universal institution look like? Right. What authority structure should a universal institution have? And I mean, I believe that those will all be will all be knit back together eventually. And I honestly think that this um, this babble moment in the world is the beginning of the exile that we need for the two sticks to be brought back together. Like what, like what happened in the, in um, the prophecy of Ezekiel that, that was fulfilled in the return of exile with Ezra and Nehemiah, the the two sticks of Northern and Southern Israel were, were recombined um, by that exile. I think this, this exile, this current exile is the beginning of the recombining of the East and the West. Um, but uh, thus, you know, I th- think th- thus the World Economic Forum, right? Like that's <laughs> right. Yeah, the World Economic seriously. Forum is the, the false version of that, right? Yeah, or, the, the, or perhaps the, the you know perhaps the World Economic Forum is going to begin having nightmares like Pharaoh, and they're going to start looking uh-huh. around and saying, "Where's my Joseph?" Yeah, um, you know. So, we, however, it is that God does it we know his intention is for the church to be um, one. Jesus prayed for it. And I'm sure the father isn't going to say no to Jesus's prayers. So, um, but, but the calendar was one of the places where God grew them up into that, um, into their position in the world of being able to have a, an institution that, that developed the communication that it needed to be able to, make universal proclamations. Right. So, um, and so Irenaeus, you know, he, he's got letters where people write to him and they say, Hey, our church 
has East celebrates Easter on this day, but the church up the road celebrates Easter on that day. And we haven't figured out how to reconcile. And, and he says, well, reconcile in, in worship and don't worry about the calendar. God gives you freedom to set the calendar. Um, mm. You're not, you're not slaves of it. You have, uh, and, and he's in Colossians he, he, and he quotes, yeah, he quotes Colossians each or no, he quotes the, uh, each of you be convinced in your own mind and, and bless one another. Mm. Right. So he says, this is an area where, um, you don't have to, uh, that, that the, and this isn't something that everybody always understood because, you know, the, the Brit, uh, the Brit, Brit on Christians that were in Wales and the Anglo-Saxon Christians that were in England, um, ended up literally pulling out swords and going to war, not over, um, not over the date of Easter, over the disrespect that they showed one another's leaders. And they said, well, this is a matter of loyalty. If you disrespect my leader, I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to uh, duel with you. So they, they had this whole, like all these different battles um, because they thought celebrating Easter on a different day than what our authority told us to was disrespectful. And we've got to defend the honor of our leaders because we, that's what love looks like. Right? <clears throat> so it's such a different world, but it was the way that God taught them to communicate um, the way that God, because eventually they did come to understand when, uh, come to a, a, an agreement on when Easter should be, which is, which was the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox is what they settled on. Um, so, which is, you know, which I think has symbolic poetic significance, but is not, you know, he could have landed the other direction and it would have been fine. So, okay. That kind of leaves me in this interesting place because everything you just said really did help me understand that, you know, with a calendar, if you're following the calendar in that way, then you are looking and understanding creation completely different than where we see it now. You know, you're you the you're it's almost like these things are a tutor and discipling you to think about the world that you're in and how it all flows. And I mean, if you're a farmer, most people were at that time, they were, that's what they were doing. You need the sun right. out particular times and you know what kind when it's going to be wet and when you're going to have a good season, if this is a good season or a bad season, you know, it, it makes you think just, and everything you do out, out here in, in Idaho, because we have these long days, you could it literally be up at four o'clock, four thirty, and the sun is out fully beaming. You know, the sun right. starts to rise at 3.30, a quarter till 4. And by 4.15, you got a full-on sun, and you can be out working in the field at that time of day, you know? And so it just – and you can work until about 10.15 at night when the sun starts to set. It's just really these twilight moments. It's just really weird. But it connects you to creation completely different. Do you think that now um, – our, so now you have a Christian calendar. Do you think that we need to follow more of a Christian calendar in 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 what we're doing to bring us kind of back to that connectedness? Because there's kind of two things that, at work here. It's like, okay, hey, be convinced in your own mind. You're not uh, under the calendar in the same way. You're you're over it now. So schedule accordingly. Um, 
Does that mean that just as randomness to it? It doesn't really matter the, the months and the days, just do whatever you like? Or is there something that we still need from that that we need to look at and investigate and say, oh, this is this brings us back into reality. Um, that's one of the wonderful things about God's world is that, you know, because of people, because of the way God made the world and made them, that they have a place in this world for and have a purpose in this world and are designed to do things in this world and and to build it. And you, you know that that's just an anchor. So how do you get? I guess the question is, what calendar should we be using? How do we get? Should we be using a calendar? What is the purpose of it now? Well, I mean, I think the, the purpose of the church calendar is uh, and just just like the Old Testament. The purpose of the calendar is to remind us uh and bring us bring us back memorialize mm. the uh parts of jesus's life right the the that's what the sun the moon and the stars were for when god created them um and uh the now that we're in charge of the calendar we should learn the wisdom mm, that's of how good. the old testament calendar worked and yeah. then apply it into our our adulthood, right? You know, now that we're not children, we're adults, um, spiritually speaking, because <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way. Um, we're supposed to take that wisdom that we learned from the law and then apply it into our current, current setting, current situation. And, um, that is what, you know, that, that's the benefit. So it should benefit our children, um, in that way, in a tutoring sort of way. So, uh, you know, it, the, the hymns we sing around Christmas, uh, the, the hymns we sing around Easter, the, you know, the stories we tell, the, the verses and that we, that become associated with the birth of Jesus. All of that is our kids should grow up and learn that stuff in a, inoculating way, right? In a, in a way that inoculates them against ever wanting to be secular because they know what they would lose. Mm. There's this, um, a, when the world is gospel shaped, it's grace, uh, grace drenched. Uh, when the, when everything about the world and the calendar and, the home and he would, they would lose all of that grace and joy and beauty by walking away from Jesus. Um, it has that inoculating effect that we want um, the calendar to have. Right? You, you, the, um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, I've heard um, Ben Merkel say it like this, you know, one of the things that we are to do with our homes is to create an environment with our homes that tie the allegiances of our children to um, the gospel, right? So that they right. can't see a moment ever not, you know, if you if you have these wonderful memories and joys of Christmas and the food and the taste, because you know this thing is going to be made around that time and you know that all your people are going to be together and the stories and the culture and the joy, if that's all there, then if they ever thought about missing that moment, they would ache. They would 
moan. They would right. not want to miss that moment because you've you tied their allegiances with smells and food and flavor and joy and happiness. And he made me think, well, how do you do that every day <laughs> with some, right, in some exactly. way? Where you're tying your children's allegiances to the beauty and the joy. Like we talk about with Titus, you know, and this is what's supposed to happen with the woman. This is what she does. And that is such a huge testimony to the gospel is that she loves her husband and she loves her children. And this is a joy for her to operate with her family that the children love her back and they speak to her name and say, she's the blessed woman. She's taking such good care, cooks us the greatest food in the world. I mean, and so all of a sudden this sunshine and this joy just burst forth out of the home um, because of this love session that's happening inside of there and allegiance is being tied to that, that if that was ever something that was taken away, they would be broken and destroyed because of it. And so I think it's the same thing. It's that, you know, we're looking at the church calendar as something that I need to take and and I need to spend time being taught again um, through a lot of, I think, some 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 basic Old Testament stuff, the discipling of the stars, the discipling from stars that teach us and point us to Christ. And that's what their purpose was. And this is how they interacted. And this is how they developed this. I need to do some time. I need to spend some time thinking about that again. So that I can start saying, well, how do I take everything around us? Uh, like Deuteronomy says, when you walk along the way, when you get up, when you sit down, when you eat, right? And start saying, okay, how do I take the church calendar and start using it to point back to Christ in the same way in our home? So that we look forward to certain festivals around, you know, and certain events around that too. You know, um, kind of brings up uh uh I was recently on Whitlock talking about Juneteenth and right. um, one of the things that I grew up with was Juneteenth. We would go out to the Juneteenth festival and the whole block would be there. I mean, everybody black, white, it was, it was, there's no doubt it was a very black event, but everybody yeah. was welcome, right? It was like, our holiday, our community holiday. And we had all the foods there. We had all of the people had their new African outfits on um, and, and people would have all and all the church choirs would come out and then we would have prayer um, and thank God for our freedom. So most people don't even know what Juneteenth is or what it was. But Juneteenth <clears throat> was an event in, in 1865 in, uh, in Texas in a little town in Texas where some slaves didn't know that they had been freed. And the Union soldiers had marched into the town and let them know, yeah, freedom has been yours for two years now. <laughs> uh, uh, and they didn't know about it. And the first thing that these uh, freed men did was pray to God, thanking him for their freedom. That was the first thing they did. And then they rejoiced and they put on new clothes to signify the fact that they had been in a new time, in a new era, and, and was looking for the future and not the past, right? Took off their slave clothes, put on new clothes. And it was uh, almost like the, the, the Declaration of Independence has finally grown up to some form of maturity to where it's reaching everybody in the nation, right? And so right, right. it was this lovely, lovely festival um, that it, and it wasn't broad and wide and like every black person celebrated. It wasn't like that. It was only a certain sect. I, I heard Delano Squire say this and I think he might be right. There were people, I think it was, um, uh, there were people who come from this town 
and came from Texas who celebrated this event that spread out and it's probably why it migrated, which is why we got the holiday. Some even believe that Memorial Day was this was the beginning of Memorial Day because of the Union soldiers. The freed black men were celebratory to the Union soldiers who had come and freed them and they wanted to honor them as long along with this time of celebration of being freed. And that's where wow. that's where a lot of people think that, hey, this is where um, the start of uh, um, uh, Memorial Day Memorial had come, Day yeah, had come from. Out of yeah, absolutely. And it, it makes it really doesn't make sense. But one of the things that's happened is that Juneteenth has kind of been hijacked um, and it's kind of been forgotten. And then just recently, I believe last year, which is what set you off. Our president, Joe Biden, decided to make Juneteenth a national holiday, (laughs) which it came because of the fact that the social justice movement has been pushing a narrative. You have George Floyd that died and it's like the Democrats were like, "Okay, what is it that we can give these black folks to let them know that we're on their side and to pacify them a little bit? Right, right. And what he came up with, what they can—it's definitely wasn't Biden because he ain't that smart. What they came up with was Juneteenth, and so they gave Juneteenth a national um, stamp of approval. Say, so everybody, Juneteenth is a national holiday, and this pissed you off. <laughs> yeah, it really did. It, it was it, it was super frustrating um, because I think there is because it's a power grab, right? Any, any attempt to take a holiday and say, um, yeah, you were celebrating it. Um, but we're going to give you now permission. Um, that's, that's the whole point of Juneteenth is that they were free. Um, and to, to say, well, now you have our permission. Isn't that nice of us? is to say, Hey, we don't want you off the plantation. Come back over here. You are now, um, you are our, we're giving you permission to celebrate. Well, that's what slaves get permission to celebrate. We don't need permission to celebrate if we're free. Um, it's, it's the same, it's the same government that's trying to, that says you can't use, uh, you, you can't celebrate the 4th of July with fireworks um, <laughs> that, that is saying, and Hey, you can have our permission to have Juneteenth as well. Um, it, it's a, I think it's a power grab um, to say you don't get to do it. So here's the way I think of it, right? Moses comes and says, I'm going to take God's people out into the wilderness for a festival. We're going to go celebrate. Pharaoh is, he doesn't have a problem with the festival so long as they have it on their terms, right? He says, you can, you can have the festival here. You can celebrate here. You don't need to go away. Right. (laughs) And I think that Juneteenth is Pharaoh saying, just have the festival here. Do you think, okay. So, so, so let me push back a little bit because I think there is a group of people that are saying, wait a second, you're upset that uh, uh, black folks are finally recognized in their celebrations 
by the federal government. So the federal government is is not trying to necessarily hijack it. They're doing the same thing they do with the Independence Day. Right. Independence Day is a national holiday because it's the day that we declared our independence and freedom from uh, our overlords. And so it's marked as that. And this is just another form of Independence Day that should have been recognized, but wasn't. So why do you have a problem with that? It's the the timing of it all. Now, if if we had said, you know, back back right after it happened, hey, let's all celebrate together. That's one thing, right? Um, but this is uh, this is not um, mm. a time any longer in which I think the you can look at the federal government and not have them trying to consolidate power. Um, cause I think that's what happens. That's what's happening is we've got this major consolidation of power cause it's at the same time that they're also establishing pride week or pride month. Yeah. Right. 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 Same month. So yeah. this is not the, this is not the only holiday that they're saying, Hey, let's add this to the calendar. Right. The, all, all of the things that they're adding to the calendar right now, um, are attempts to consolidate. Uh, into a single, uh, into a single count. They're 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 taking things that are not theirs and adding them to the calendar. So it's uh, interesting. Interesting. So they're taking things that are not there and adding them to the calendar. Uh, well, they've done that with Christmas, right? And you can see that they're that now they're saying you know we may just cancel Christmas. Ah, <laughs> right. Because right. um, there, there, no more, no more Christmas, uh, Christmas trees in the Capitol. No more, you know. They're, Interesting. They're saying this is ours because it's on our calendar, so we're going to do with it what we want. Um, I mean, they're hearing, hearing them talk about. Uh, uh, here's what Passover means to the government, right? And we're going to have. Or, or Hanukkah, it wasn't, it was Hanukkah, uh, the vice president saying, well, here's what Hanukkah means to the government, universal light for everyone. And they're trying to take things and say, we, as long as we can fit them into our secular system, they can exist. And so we will change Christmas. And so it fits into our secular, secular over, over system. You have the, the, uh, the superstructure of everything is secularism. And as long as you are willing to put your, make your holiday fit into our superstructure, you can keep it. Um, and I think that's what they're, they're doing with Juneteenth, right? They're, um, it's no longer going to be a celebration where and they're not going to have pastors come in and church choirs come in and, you know, the way that, that it's been celebrated traditionally as a Christian holiday they're going uh, a local local Christian holiday. They're gonna they're gonna turn it into here's a secular version of June nineteenth. You're welcome, right? We're going to accept you into our um, pantheon. You're welcome. It's a secular pantheon, though. Um, and Jesus just has. Uh, there have been places that have tried to do that to Jesus in the past, and it and. Um, you know, 
a Christian holiday like Juneteenth shouldn't be just added by into a secular space. I like you said a Christian. That's it. That's it. So there's there's a couple things here that. So let me let me push back just a little bit. How much time do you have? Because you have yeah. to run. I have to run in, in I don't know, three minutes. Oh, all right. We'll have to <laughs> say. So I think I here's what's horrible about the situation. I feel like okay. First of all, the people who the origin of Juneteenth wouldn't recognize the children of this current generation. I think that they're completely disconnected. I think the origin yeah. of Juneteenth would look at these kids and they would beat them in the same way that Jesus beat the people out the temple. I, there, there is no way you mean to tell me your forefathers that you are going to partner with people who don't know what a man or a woman is. You mean right. to tell me that you're going to partner with people who don't know what a human being is and that are killing more of you off than are birthing you in some states and you are going to celebrate a holiday with these idiots? Get from me. I will make a whole new seed. I don't know you. I think that those forefathers who were freed there would have no patience, no tolerance right. and no love for this current crop. So especially the current crop who doesn't understand the unifying effect uh, that they had and the love that they had um, for people, especially of another race who came and gave their blood and their lives to free them. They yeah. wouldn't have any, you know, there was, they wouldn't have any tolerance or patience for that. Here's the problem that I see. It seems wrong not to honor both the troops and the people who were freed in Texas in some sort of form of uh, American history nationally. I think that that is one of the moments. I don't think we can look at that moment and look at the Declaration of Independence and not see the the beauty of the outworking of that declaration meeting almost like through time and space over time in Old Testament New Testament meeting out its reality in that group to the point that right. it's like that session that world um, that age is actually over. And that was the finishing of that age. And I think that's what we're celebrating, which is why I say Juneteenth isn't a black holiday. While it's very black centric, it's an American holiday. This is something that white people, black people, Americans, period, should be able to celebrate because it's their history. And right. that's part of my conflict with the people who are trying to make Juneteenth all black. It's not just all black. It's black centric, of course. But America has this melting pot. And you had white people who came and bled and died. And I, I told Jason Whitlock on the show, if I was going to make a monument for Juneteenth, it would be the people who were enslaved reaching their hands out and the people who were the Union soldiers that came dropping blood from a key into the lock, unlocking the, the chains. Like that's the right. image that we should have. There's a unifying effect there. And anybody that uses that to promote disunity, they are outside of the meaning and the intent of that holiday. And so, and I don't even think people know just how important that moment is in American history and how it, it actually pulls, pours so much cold water on the social justice BS that's out there. Cause I'm going to tell you, those folks wouldn't look at would look at us now, and not just black folks. They look at most of Americans and say, "What is wrong with y'all?" Yeah, right. 
what, what happened to the freedom that we fought for? Yeah, what, what happened? Yeah, exactly. This is not the freedom that we prayed for. This is not the freedom that we want. There was We fought for a different kind of freedom, and you guys have completely missed it and messed it all up. So anyway, you got to run. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more on calendar and how we can observe okay. it, you know, um, and, and, and bring that tradition to helping us um, point to Christ better. So we'll get a chance to do that, man. Okay, let's do it. Appreciate you, bro. All right, appreciate you too. We'll talk later. All right. Uh, Bye. Okay, bye.